Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome listeners to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, who's going to introduce the subject and guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Ron Brash. He's the Director of Cybersecurity Insights at Verve Industrial. His topic today is quantifying risk when numbers are scarce. Let's listen in to your interview with Ron Brash. Ron, your topic today is quantifying risk when numbers are scarce. Can you start with, with where did all this come from? What have you been doing that led you into this, this, this topic? Thanks, Andrew. Well, my past, or I guess maybe my relatively recent emergence for, for some people in the spaces was due to the S4 ICS detection challenges, uh, whatever the success might have been. Now, to kind of take it back, uh, and one of the reasons why I'm in this space is I was kind of a, che- a Chevron child before I was born. So my family was the number one sales agency for, for Chevron in North America, selling 2.5 million gallons of direct refined product. And that's not including, you know, other downstream product like uh, lube oils and so on. And so I, gr- I was one of the few, you know, un- not, uh, one of the few non-baby boomers that was dipping bulk tanks at seven or eight years old with no safety equipment with my dad. So it's kind of funny, but not really funny at all. Uh, and then I kind of took a bit of a hiatus from oil and gas. And then next thing you know, my esteemed friend and mentor, Eric Byers, brought me into the fold at Tofino Security, you know, pre-acquisition by Belden uh, for something like six and a half years. And then I kind of grew up, you know, either whether I was contracting to Belden or some of their other subsidiaries. And then I did a big stint uh, for one of the big fours as a subject matter expert. Uh, and I also ran a boutique based out of Montreal. Um, now, eventually, now I kind of went full circle and I wound up as a director of Verve Industrial, whether it's a product ownership or uh, doing advisory site help and, and other OT cybersecurity tasks. But that kind of led me into a whole bunch of worlds on how of, of building business cases and doing advisory work and, and looking at quantified numbers. And that's kind of that's kind of why we're here today to discuss something that I'm seeing emerge from so many different angles. And, and that, that's kind of my background history. So Ron, your topic is, uh, you know, risk assessment without numbers. Um, where's that come from? Where, you know, why, why is this an issue? So it's so a great questions, Andrew. Uh, one of the, th- or there's been several things that have happened uh, over the last several years in, in this industry, whether that's what Lever- Gartner likes to call operational technology or OT, or whether it's, you know, ICS or SCADA or critical infrastructure. And what I've seen is there's been a multitude or an emergence of a number of asset owners uh, trying to quantify what vendors are telling them is important for them in security. And they want to know, you know, how often an attack may occur, what is the likelihood of that attack, but then they have no data or numbers, even if maybe they've had incidents occur in the past, but they don't know how their, their competition is doing. Let's say, you know, across Canada, you have X oil, oil producers, well, they might not, might not even know the incidents that happen in one or another. The other issue is you have executive boards or, or, you know, managing directors of some sort of some sort of sites, and, and they're trying to justify their business case uh, for for security. So how much how much is it going to cost over this many years? Uh, what are the likelihood of the gain of those incidents occurring? And then you also have 
various product owners trying to justify the cost. So if I need to do improve the security of my product, what is the cost that I need to bear from start to finish? And so those are kind of the areas that, that these questions are emerging from, but then they're finding that there's little to no data or how do they build a story to look at the, the complete picture of what something might cost. And so that's, that's largely where, where this, this idea of how do I quantify risk and build even a pseudo equation has come from. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's clear that, that we'd all like numbers. We'd all like numerical risk analysis. It, it makes ROI calculations easier. Um, but it, we don't always have the numbers. So, you know, this is your point. How do you do this? How do you come up with quantitative risk assessments and risk analysis when, when you don't have the numbers? Great question. And let me, let me tell you, it's hard. Uh, you need numbers and you need scenarios that your organization will likely face with ranging consequences and it's not a science for sure although we'd love to be able to say we have all of the data maybe maybe in the future the insurance companies uh and auditors will have that but but better today i say we'd have we have an approach that's probably more repeatable than many of those that are used in psychology but for the purposes of today we can do some quick mass that could be easily validated so to get those numbers for example we we know the numbers or, or the cost of an incident within a public company, or looking at the likelihoods that an attack would originate from an insider. Those are, those are fairly well understood topics, either in the IT realm or enterprise levels, or just even knowing if we look at the, the series of uh, industrial attacks, whether that's on Maersk or Mondoles or Norsk or various other, like for example, the Polish lot attack on the nav data for aviation. Largely, those, those attacks originated from Windows hosts or commodity infrastructure. So we know some basic numbers, right? So the next step then would be to understand those numbers. And I mean, there's in insurance companies that underwrite. So obviously, there must be data. There must be some probabilities. And there's definitely organizations uh, that focus on sheer statistics and even accounting costs. So it's, it's, it's you know, it, you can figure this out. But... Perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, we can't find all of that information. But from my interactions with many asset owners and, and even governmental entities, I don't think that many have put a cost of an incident versus real, realistic risk in, into factors that are consumable uh, by decision makers. So there, there's kind of two sides to the coin on how do you look at numbers. And one is, is it, is it realistic? Is it probable? Is it something that you can, you know, quantify or discuss or is it you know on for our american viewers you know cnn or fox style fud uh which and that is also prominently displayed by various vendors and experts and so on so for me to get to numbers we really need to look at the context it's about keeping whatever organization or business literally in business and that's how we go about finding numbers we need to put ourselves in the corner of realism versus the corner of super hypotheticals that we see in Hollywood. Okay, Andrew, so I like the idea of turning these problems into numbers, but how do you really quantify risk in the industrial space? If we're talking about assessing risk in the industrial space, there's two ways to do it. You know, there's qualitative and quantitative. Um, we're talking about quantitative in this podcast. Quantitative is putting numbers to it. And, uh, you know, the very roughly, the way you quantify risk. Let's say, uh, you know, the the way you put a number on how much do I should I expect to pay 
for a certain for realizing a certain kind of risk in the next 12 months you would say roughly i mean there's there's different formulas but roughly the probability of of an incident occurring times the consequence the cost of consequence so what's the probability that this kind of incident will occur in the next 12 months times if it occurred what would be the consequence? You multiply the two together, and you, you get what's called the expected cost, the average cost of this kind of incident. And now you can go to the board and start start making, uh, you know, business decisions about we should spend this much to prevent that expected cost. They, you know, they 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 work with these numbers all the time. The problem, the problem, is with uh, the numbers. Where do we get the numbers from? So, um, you know, if we look at, at uh, I don't know, common malware infecting uh, uh, an industrial site, there's lots of industrial sites in a big organization. They have a malware infestation every couple of years. They have statistics on this. They can say the probability at any one site is, you know, 3%. The cost at the average site was, uh, you know, $75,000 for the cleanup. Um, you can multiply these together and get numbers. But... You know, it falls apart when you start talking about what are called low-frequency, high-impact incidents. You know, take an extreme example. Um, how, how, what, what, what probability should we assign to the possi- you know, to an attack that would shut down the entire North American power grid, the entire grid, for three days? Well, let's look backwards. How often has that happened? It's never happened. So, is the probability zero going forward? Well, no. Uh, you know, first law of cybersecurity, nothing is secure. Um, no matter how secure we are, it's always possible to imagine an attack sophisticated enough to bring about this kind of consequence. Okay, so what kind of probability should we assign to this? Shall we make up a probability and go to our board and say, you know, here is the the uh, the probability of this incident. I need money to to mitigate it. They're going to look at the probability and say, where did you get that from? You made that up, didn't you? you? You're asking us to make business decisions on made-up probabilities, and, and the whole conversation goes south really quickly. So, you know, this is why we're here listening to, to Ron. Um, it sounds like he's got another, a, a different approach, an approach that would give us some numbers um, for these sort of uh, difficult-to-quantify cases. Okay, I have questions. Um, firstly... I, I can understand how difficult it might be to quantify the risk of something like an entire North American power grid shutdown, but would that actually be a relevant question for the people that Ron works with? Like, I can imagine more often than not, the questions that they're really asking themselves have to do with those malware events that actually occur with, you know, 3% probability at these plants. Do Ron's clients actually have to think about something so large as a, a power grid shutdown? Uh, I think the the short answer is that um, individual enterprises may not, uh, on average, consider such a possibility. Now, if you're a power producer with 150 power plants in North America, then yes, you care about a, uh, a widespread shutdown because it's going to impair all of your plants. It, it's going to have a big impact on you. So some businesses will ask the question, others do not. But more to your point, yes, um, most businesses ask questions about routine incidents um, routinely. And they have numbers. They have statistics for those incidents. That's not the problem. The problem is when we're talking, you know, the, the problem is not high frequency, low impact incidents. 
the problem coming up with numbers is when we have low frequency, extremely rare incidents with very high impacts. The risk equation doesn't, you know, doesn't care about the numbers. You, you multiply a, a very low probability with a very high impact and you get millions of dollars. And you know, we should really do something about this. The question is, you know, we can, we can quantify, we can you know, fairly easily calculate the, the cost of a very big incident it's going to be very big. We can come up with those numbers. If it's never happened, what probability should we assign to it? And this is the, the, the question that Ron is going to explore for us. What I heard is, is you're talking about, about consequences. You're talking about likelihoods. I mean, risk is consequence times likelihood. Um, it, you know, I can, I can kind of see how to calculate the cost of consequences. The likelihood is the tricky part. Can you talk about how you do that? Another great question. And sometimes I even start from the cost of consequences and, and work backwards because those are, are solid numbers I usually see. Um, for example, if a refinery is a shutdown, I know that cost. Now, to understand what is the, the relation between a shutdown and the likelihood of a cyber-enabled cyber or, or a cyber-something event, uh, and I don't like that word cyber, by the way, uh, it's, it's quite tricky to go to likelihood. Now, what you can do is you can look at the amount of commodity IT type systems and attacks that we do have today. Uh, there has been various organizations. Uh, one in particular uh, had a rough number of, let's say, 100 incidents last year. And just shy of 16 of those last year were related to insiders. Now, insider, that could be whether a disgruntled employee uh, a third-party individual, you know, some sort of outs outsourcer or integrator, or someone that is an honest person being honest, so pushing an empty project file to a live system and causing some sort of a malfunction on the on the on the process. So that is conveniently a 16% chance of having a human-related uh, incident that is cyber-enabled, and so that's where I kind of look at being realistic. There's many people that make poor choices but they're, they're experts in their field, or maybe they're tired, or you have a well-meaning individual that's a junior uh, perform some sort of uh, an attack, although it's not really an attack, it's just some sort of activity that has unintended consequences. What you can also see in terms of likelihood is commodity malware uh, being repurposed and, and, you, and going through your typical IT or convergent infrastructure. And that has got a very, very high likelihood. Now, what is the consequence of that or the impact of it? That's, that's another discussion altogether. And that, that requires a kind of a different uh, calculation. But if we look at something, let's say Trisis, and I, and I know I'll be in disagreement with many people here. Now, the Trisis attack was monumental and it wound up in, in two emergency shutdowns of a refinery. However, if we look backwards, it was a series of common even let's say IT based uh, attacks before it ever got towards the, the, the TriConnect station or a, a station that was in communication with the ESD. What you could have seen then is what is the likelihood, and these are IT numbers that you, can, you could probably easily go find from almost any institution. What is the likelihood of a poorly configured firewall or an incidents that recurred from it? Or what is the likelihood that someone has, has uh, performed some sort of incident using commodity uh, malware-like Mimikatz. 
So those are kind of the, those are some quick ways to look at the likelihood of an incident affecting you with respect to your organization. So if you're a very, very mature organization and you have a number of compensating controls, those are things that might reduce the, the factor or the likelihood factor of a successful attack. It doesn't li- eliminate it, but it might either reduce the impact or the likelihood of it. Um, but those are, those are factors I look at. But to summarize, when I'm looking at likelihood of attacks, I look for common attacks first that I've seen in other industries. Uh, it doesn't have to be in hydro or power or oil and gas or pharma, take your pick. Then I look next at people-related incidents. So that would be your, your honest, honest Joe making a mistake or honest Jane. Then I look at my third-party risks. So that might be an integrator or a third party, you know, making an honest mistake and putting in an LTE modem, bypassing all of your controls, common. And then I look for things that are syst- systemic vulnerabilities. So those are things like uh, exploiting in a, com- a commoditized or packaged way, things like Modbus. Modbus is largely a known lead and definitely known to be insecure in many ways, either by architecture or design. Uh, and, and many of those stacks are vulnerable to some sort of fuzzing because they'll never be patched. And that can definitely be weaponized relatively easily because it's, it's open source for the most part. And then you have, you have kind of these two last categories that are, are harder, or they're probably far more, more rare, although they may, depending on the context of your business, if you're the only power supply, uh, provider for, let's say, Washington, D.C., well, then you're probably going to have a way higher likelihood of facing one of these two things. And that would be, and these, and these would require knowledge, uh, you know, a full on supply chain exploitation. So I go after that, that integrator that provides the logic for, for those relays, uh, or going after the person who provides all of the software downloads for those HMIs and, and, you know, panel builders. And then you also have your nation states last, but again, I, I find that that would be very, very rare in comparison to the other uh, vectors that probably have a way higher likelihood. So I look at I look at the vectors likelihood and with context. Okay, there are a few points that Ron hit on that I want you to touch on, Andrew. The first, um, he mentioned that Modbus is known generally to be insecure. Can you elaborate a little bit on why he said that? Sure. Uh- you know, for the the, I mean, Modbus is is very familiar to operations people, but you know, it may be more alien to the, uh, the listeners from from the enterprise side of the equation. Um, Modbus is a communications protocol. It's a very simple one. Um, you know, there's only a handful of messages. The most important messages are uh, poll saying, "Give me the value of this uh, register." They call them or coil, or they've got some very old terminology in the Modbus protocol. It's a very old protocol give me the value of this reading basically and the reading is identified by a 16-bit number here's the value that comes back okay uh the second most common command is write this value to that place in the plc generally to change a set point for alarms or to you know open a valve or or close a switch uh, you know affect the physical world so it's a very simple protocol that lets you read values from programmable logic controllers, little computers that are connected to the physical process, or change values in those those controllers, uh, very likely resulting in changes to physical operations. The reason it's not secure in most people's terminology is that it's not encrypted. It's not authenticated. If you 
get a presence, if you get a, a laptop or if you get a piece of your software deep into an industrial network at the point where it can connect to a Modbus PLC, you can connect to that PLC, send it a command saying, you know, change this value and it'll change the value. It won't ask you who you are. It won't ask you for a password. It won't ask you for a crypto key. It'll just say, yes, sir, and do whatever you tell it. So, you know, that's an example of once you get a presence deep into an industrial system, if all you look around, you know, if you look around and all you see is Modbus, you're home free. You can do whatever you want to that physical process. And something else Ron mentioned, Mimikatz. Can you explain what that is to me? Well, I had to look up Mimikatz myself. It is a, a tool available on the internet, uh, open source. It's a demonstration of uh, certain kinds of attack techniques. Um, you know, basically the tool, it, it runs on a computer and it searches memory in the computer for credentials, for passwords, for password hashes, for pins, for, uh, you know, Kerberos certificates. Uh, you know, all, these are encryption things. Um, and when you find these, the tool will let you reuse them on other machines uh, where hopefully those credentials work. And it's a tool that lets you spread your influence within a compromised network. So, you know, it is you, it, it, it targets generally IT style networks, but even the higher levels of industrial networks have a lot of IT type components in them. I mean, what I took, uh, what I took away from, from Ron's comment was, was putting all this together. Um, he was talked a lot about individual attack techniques. Um, but what I heard him say was that if we have a, a difficult attack scenario, let's say, you know, taking on a, a refinery, taking it down and damaging, physically damaging one of the catalytic crackers, you can imagine an attack sophisticated enough to bring about that consequence. Um, and that sophisticated attack is going to have a lot of individual steps. Each of the individual steps is going to look more familiar. You know, steal a password or trick someone into giving you a password so you can log into the IT network and from the IT network spread your influence with Mimikatz and on and on until you get down to the Modbus controllers, figure out what each of the registers means, send this command here, send that command there. You can put a, a, a scenario like this together out of these individual pieces. You might actually have statistics on how effective each of these piecewise attacks, each of these attack elements is against the kinds of defenses you already have in, in place at the target. And now you can put these statistics together into probabilities and you can chain a lot of small probabilities that you're confident of into a big, uh, into a very small probability, the, the, you know, the, the low frequency, high impact attack um, that you're not confident of. And if you have to make up stuff in this scenario, it's not the probability of, you know, the attack that you're pulling out of the air, the, or the probability of success. It's the probability of the success of individual bits and pieces, bits and pieces that are much simpler and that you can make credible estimates of if you don't have strong statistics. So I thought that was, that was a, a great insight. What I heard you just say is that if we have statistics on the, you know, the simpler kinds of steps that we use in these long, complicated, sophisticated attacks, we can combine those statistics on individual steps into a, you know, much more credible statistic for the entire attack. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, it sounds straightforward, but I'm thinking it's more complicated than that. Can you give me an example? Yeah, and and for the nation state or a super complex uh, high impact situations, which so far, at least in public knowledge, are low frequency, although maybe increasing, um, you can wind up with a very unique situation. And, and here's an example uh, from the oil and gas industry. So let's say the, the price of crude uh, drops down to a very low value, uh, $30 a barrel, which for most of Canada, that's, that's the limit on whether or not you're profitable or not, given the arrangement we have with NAFTA. And what what you can think about then is, let's say I'm a, an attacker and I want to cause either an economic impact on that organization or not, or maybe I'm something you know more nefarious than that, and I'm, I'm, an, I'm a hacktivist for, for eco purposes, and I want to cause an impact on that organization. So if I want to look at something like that organization has a IT-related contingency budget of, let's say, $10 million Canadian a year. And that organization has a burn rate of $10,000 or $100,000 an hour. And so what we can wind up is if we can calculate downtime for that facility at X amount of hours at times Y burn rate, we know that there's only so there's, there can be, there can be a consequence here. Now, if I'm a malicious attacker and I know that you have that contingency rate and the economic conditions are poor, like in this example, what I can do is I can cause a, a high volume of low impact, but high frequency events like malware. And so I can consume all of that contingency budget uh, for that organization. So let's say the attacker does X amount of tax and burns through that $10 million because of downtime for that facility. What will happen then is that site owner or maybe even the upper management will have to go and request more funds for that downtime, or at least justify the operation of that facility. And this is really unique, but very, very true. And it's a, it's a hypothetical situation that is less hypothetical than we'd like to believe is that C-suite or CISO will then need to go talk to the executive board to unlock more funds. And if the price of crude, let's say is $30 a barrel, that executive board might say, well, that, that business unit or that site, does not warrant continued operation. And so I'm making the executive choice here to shut it down, or we're going to claim bankruptcy on, the, on that one uh, subsidiary. As an attacker, I have not gone after a safety system. I have not even really gone after critical systems. I have effectively shut down your business operations and disabled a piece of critical infrastructure. So let's say that was a refinery. Now there's no refined product going outbound. So the military doesn't have jet a for their aircraft or that, that airport doesn't have it, or your local cities don't have diesel for, for their shipping lanes, whatever have you. And I've accomplished all of my goal with, you know, common high frequency, low impact events that resulted in a high impact to that organization. So what I hear Ron saying is that these consequences may reach past just dollar amounts, that they're more far-reaching than that. They can have effects elsewhere. That's right. Um, you know, he's, he's changed gears on us a bit from, from calculating probabilities to working on the consequences. Um, but, you know, it, it's very interesting that, that you know, he, sh he shows us a scenario where a very small, apparently a very small intrusion has far-reaching consequences. I mean, you know, the, the only other 
kind of example like that that springs to mind is is critical infrastructure. So for example, if an attacker is able to shut down uh, power distribution in a city, um, it's not just the lights that go out. Um, in most cities, most uh, water distribution happens with electric engines. And so after a period of time, your reservoirs empty and you don't have drinking water in the city anymore. You don't even have water to, you know, to, to flush your toilets. Now you've got a sanitation crisis in the city. You've got a drinking water crisis, you know, because you've, you've taken, you've targeted one kind of, of target. You know, we've got to, we've got to expand our thinking about consequences and understand that, that consequences can sort of have larger cascading effects. So I thought that was, that was a useful insight. You've talked about, you know, the very serious consequence potentially of, of shutting a plant down. To me, it's, it's an unexpected consequence um, of, you know, a handful of, of malware uh, incidents that, uh, you know, require cleaning out and require shutdowns. Is this common? Is this something that, that you know, you, you, you run into in your practice? Yeah, great catch. Uh, so there's, there's your direct consequences that are that are really well understood so the cost of a shutdown and a reboot uh, or the amount of hours that it's going to require at that labor rate those are those are pretty simple calculations that you can do in in practice i see a lot of unintended consequences or indirect consequences that are hard to quantify that are forgotten in in the story of what does something cost at the end of the day and, and this is very common, probably uh, nine times out of 10, I will see a number of, of direct effects or, or financial impacts or what have you uh, being forgotten from the calculation because people will say that's not my problem or, or, or so on. So I'd like to start with kind of a, an example that kind of bridges away from oil and gas and looks more at the aviation industry. And, and this is an example that we've all heard about in the news recently. So I like to call that kind of a cascading risk because this is definitely under no, unknown. We fellow travelers and, and frequent travelers are, are quite familiar with the 737s uh, and the MAXs being grounded. So there was a bunch of side effects for many of the airlines other than just a direct loss of revenue because they weren't flying or, or they weren't able to generate revenue from those planes. They had to trade aircraft between different airlines. Uh, maybe they had uh, some sort of retirement process to get rid of a, a certain portion of their fleet. Uh, they had change, changes to, to flights, so their operation centers were having last-minute delays or, or new things going in, new shifts. You have clutter on the, air, on the runways or on the adjacent aprons. So you have all these grounded planes on the ground. You had changes to maintenance structures and your scheduling. And so you have all these indirect costs that aren't factored into your direct thing, which might have actually been increasing your risk altogether. So those are some pretty hard things to, to quantify, but you need to look at them. Uh, and those all have costs, whether that's for the airline themselves or for the airports or for the overall industry. Now, when we circle back, let's say to the shutdown of a refinery, there's some indirect costs there that we don't normally think about, and those are contractual. So let's say that refinery was producing 200,000 barrels a day. Direct costs are easy to understand. Product is lost, revenue is lost, this much to fix. Okay, great. And you multiply that by your likelihood and you get a nice reasonable number. But if you have downtime or refinery, we forgot something, and this is, this is tricky here, and this is subject to the, the economic conditions. 
find a refinery to give you, let's say, 100,000 barrels of diesel a day, and I'm not able to give you diesel per day, I need to fulfill my, my contractual agreement to that uh, you know, retail chain or rack sales or whatever have you. And so what I need to do then is to go buy diesel off the open market and resell it at a gigantic loss just to fulfill my obligation. So I have this cost that is beyond, that is in addition to, let's say, uh, uh, a unit that's pro- or producing uh, low sulfur diesel. And we haven't even talked about all the other things like my workforce being tired and, and being you know burned out and all those great things. So there's so many indirect costs that are hard to quantifiable and those are unintended consequences that are typically forgotten out of these, out of these uh, scenario use cases. And I think that's, that's one of the most important things that you need to consider to make your equation more accurate than not. So Nate, what I heard there was when we look at the cost of consequences, uh, again, we have to, to you know, raise our heads, look out, out past the horizon. It's not just you know, the department responsible for the affected site or the affected uh, equipment that might be, you know, might, might be impacted, might suffer a consequence. You know, in the, the 737 example, if uh, an airline has to ground a large fraction of their fleet, well, they've got to use other aircraft. They have to use older aircraft, presumably, because the 737s are very new. Um, and so what they might find is that over the course of a long shutdown like this, um, their maintenance costs go up significantly. And that might be a completely different department than, you know, the department that's scheduling aircraft and, and you know, suffering potential cancellations and whatnot. So, you know, the, the lesson I took here is that, that you've got to look at the, the, the whole organizational impact, and that impact might be, uh, you know, quite a bit bigger than the impact on the department that suffered the breach. Yeah, you know, I'd like to actually take that idea a step further. So we open this episode talking about, you know, how Ron has to calculate risks and costs and sort of present this information to business leaders who are going to make decisions about how much to invest. But in the case of, say, you know, downed airlines, um, I could imagine that the consequences and the costs extend even past uh, those business leaders um, and past the organization itself. So does it factor into these calculations, the consequences and the costs associated with not just the organization, but the people down the line who are affected, maybe the other businesses? Possibly. I mean, in the in the airline scenario, you might imagine that uh, a flight is canceled and a, uh, you know, a CEO does not get to an important meeting and cannot reschedule the meeting for two weeks. And as a result of that, you know, a deal is delayed by two weeks, a big deal that would have resulted in, I don't know, people being hired. You know, the, 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 the geography, the nation, the, the state's um, unemployment rate might go up fractionally because people would not have been hired to build the new factory. You know, everything is delayed by two weeks. This is a, a cost that is borne by the society, not by the business. And, you know, the classic example here is, is the electric company. If the lights go out, the, you know, society incurs huge costs. Basically, business, a lot of business just stops for, you know, until the, until the lights come back on. Um, it's not the power company that pays those costs. It's society that pays those costs. And so, um, you know, what, it's, not that, it's not that you can calculate that into 
the business. This is why governments get involved. This is why we see people talking about critical infrastructure. Um, the airline industry is a critical transportation infrastructure. The electric sector is obviously critical infrastructure. So are most refineries because the consequences of outages you know, are born partly by the business, but a lot by the society. And when that's the case, that's when you start seeing uh, governments get involved. Governments are encouraging strong cybersecurity measures for, for critical infrastructures because they, they do not want society to suffer these consequences. So it's not really, it's not really part of a, a business's risk calculation. But, you know, if a business wants to avoid, let's say, regulatory impacts, um, you know, regulatory regimes being imposed on the business and every business wants that nobody nobody wants regulations uh you know it behooves them to to anticipate these potential societal impacts and take measures proactively to prevent them so that you know the the, the government critical infrastructure people don't don't get too 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 nervous and too involved let's get back to the end of your interview with ron we like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a, a parting message you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yeah. So, so thanks for having me for this bit of a whirlwind tour on risk. Uh, and I, and I'm sure it kind of sounds complicated, but what you can do, and, and this is my, my, my key objective to, to leave you with, or my key message is that you can break down just about any scenario into numbers. Now, are they 100% accurate? No. But you can break it down into chunks and, and bits and pieces and structure that together to create a meaningful story from start to finish that has numbers, uh, some probability in it, and, and wind up with something that is much better than you had before, which is, this is too hard to do. You can, you can achieve something here. Uh, as part of my, my role at, at Verb Industrial, uh, this is one of the many things that I do and I help asset owners with, whether from advisory or through our product. Uh, and if you have any other questions, you can either reach out to me directly uh, through LinkedIn at Ron Brash, uh, or you can uh, email me at rbrash at verveindustrial.com. Andrew, how about a last word from you? Well, I'll just summarize what I heard Ron say. Um, what you know, I found very intriguing was, was when you have these uh, low frequency, very low frequency, very high impact events, um, you know, you can you, you actually can come up with numbers for them. Um, the the trick to coming up with numbers for the the frequency for the the probability is to break the attack scenarios into pieces and look at numbers for each of the pieces, which are are much easier to come by, and then combine them using you know statistical techniques. Um, and the the thing to watch for on the the consequences side is the consequences can be much more severe than than they appear, and you know that's something that you know some experience and some you know, maybe a second set of eyes would uh, would help you track down. So, um, you know, that's that's what I took away, and it, it's it's an insight to me because I'd always wondered, you know, how do you come up with these these uh, these numbers? I mean, the the uh, Lloyd's of London came out with a report in 2016 saying uh, the probability of a widespread cyber blackout in North America, in the North American Northeast, was something like one in 200. And I always went, where do they get this number from? And, you know, now I've got some insights. So that's been, that's been very helpful. Great. Now, before we go, Andrew, we have books to give away and listeners who need to hear about it. Definitely. Um, 
So we would like to trade reviews for books. We'd like to encourage our listeners to uh, to submit a, a review on their favorite pod- podcast platform for the Industrial Security Podcast. Um, and, you know, we have a reward for people who, who do this. And, you know, leave your review, make it honest, good, bad, or ugly. Um, but the, the reward for leaving a review is uh, a copy of my latest book, The Black Book, Secure Operations Technology. Uh, the book documents... Um, what we see the world's most secure sites doing. It is surprising to a lot of people. The, the, the questions that the world's most secure industrial sites ask are different questions than most of us ask. The answers they get, of course, are different. They're asking different questions. They have a, a, a very different perspective on security. And that's what I've tried to document in the book. Um, we have you know, an inventory of these things. We're, we're, uh, while supplies last, we're, we're happy to, to give them away to anyone who submits a review. Please uh, submit your review and send a pointer to the review to me on, I don't know, LinkedIn or, or email andrew.ginter at waterfall-security.com and uh, send me your shipping address and I'll do my very best to get one of the black books shipped out to you. Well, that'll be it for our episode on Ron Brash. Thank you to him for speaking with you, Andrew. And thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Leave us some reviews. And thank you all for listening.